Hello and welcome to the Broadcast Sport podcast. I'm Max Miller, senior reporter for Broadcast Sport, and in this episode I speak to director Max Mannix and producer Nick Wood about the Brighton Miracle, their docudrama on Japan's famous victory over South Africa in the 2015 Rugby World Cup, and their views on creating content about sporting events. Max Mannix has been involved in the film industry since the late 90s, primarily as a writer, and then on this project, uh, wrote and directed. The writing largely came because of my relationship with Eddie Jones. I've known him for that period. Well, I've known him for a while, but particularly with that period of what the story relates to, that 2015 lead up to the Rugby World Cup. And uh, it was great to know people like Nick because prior to us coming up with the idea of making this film, we had a a friendship and a relationship and had wanted to work together. So primarily as a writer myself originally that got into directing, pretty much stumbled into it, just uh, wanted to do it, but the opportunities weren't there and had some opportunities to do that in 2007 and eight. And then thereafter with this, so uh, very happy to be able to put this together. It's something we're very proud of. Uh, I'm Nick Wood, Max, originally uh, Max and I originally met in Tokyo and he asked me to compose the music for the Brighton Miracle. And as I got more involved in the film, I ended up uh, taking a producer role as well. Uh, which I've always been a huge film lover and worked on film and TV um, and commercials as a composer. I always wanted to get involved in film beyond just music, so really appreciated the trust Max put into me for a dual role, both composing and producing. So it was a, a really great project for us both to collaborate on. The game obviously happened back in 2015. So when did you first have the idea to make a film out of it? When it first happened, when the game went the way it did, obviously it was something that nobody really saw coming apart from probably the squad itself and Eddie Jones. I was really looking at the response from so many different areas there were not only the japanese but to see fan zones to see people throughout the uk be they ireland scotland welsh and then also just throughout the rest of the world the response that it got the emotional response that it got was just unbelievable and so at first i thought well this this would be a great story because there's so much that led up to it but we didn't want to make an emotional decision as well. So thought we'd just set it aside for a few months. And I remember this happened in September, the game, but about four months later, it was January. And the thoughts were still there about making a film because people kept on talking about the result, but they didn't really know what went in to make that result. So it came about this sort of, we had this Titanic film thought where people were saying we know the ending and so we would generally raise the have you seen the titanic and you know the ship does sink but it's not about the ship sinking it's about the people on board what they went through so we thought that analogy uh was something that we wanted to utilize what went into this and what did those people go through particularly the 
coach, particularly the captain, what was their background. So it'd be 2016 January, Max, where we thought, yeah, this we could do something with this, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of energy, of course, like all projects do. And Nick, when did you become involved with the project? It's interesting because uh, I knew Max was actually uh, involved in um, working with Eddie uh, leading up to um, the game itself. And, um, maybe I'm jumping around with this, but Max and I were having a coffee in Dean and DeLuca's in Tokyo and uh, we were having, we always met very regularly and Max said, uh, oh, excuse me a sec, I just want to say hello to someone. And he went off and he came back and he said, oh, that was Eddie Jones, the uh, coach of the Japanese rugby team. Um, and he was telling me who he was and that they'd met. And um, I was happened to be present when Max and Eddie became reacquainted and um, Eddie ended up contacting Max and asking him to come on board to do some um, defensive training. So I, I kind of was involved from that day because I would ask um, Max, how's it going? What's it like working? And I'd hear, you know, really interesting stories about the training and, um, you know, the kind of approach. And then, of course, when Japan did beat um, South Africa and, and Max had mentioned, you know, and this is a great story. I want to do something. I was already sold on the idea. And, and uh, so, yeah, it, it, it was that chance meeting in Tokyo, you know, the biggest city in the world. And uh, we're having a coffee in Dean and DeLuca's and Eddie Jones walks in and he's having a coffee. Good coffee, by the way. So no coincidence. <laughs> Obviously, your close relationship with Eddie would have helped with this, but there's a lot of close stakeholders involved in this film. So how did you get them all on board? I was actually concerned about asking him because whilst Nick and I had some thoughts about you know, making the film, in a way, you kind of want to believe the dream that we're going to be able to do it. But obviously, Eddie's support for the film was critical. And I waited for him to come back to Australia at the time I was in Australia. And I went and saw him pretty much in his, uh, where he grew up in, in Australia in around Randwick. So this was Coogee. I saw him, which is pretty much uh, the next connecting suburb. So he called where he wanted to meet, went and saw him. And I said to him, you know, I, I think this is a great story. And some of the things that I wanted to touch on with him which he declined originally was I thought it was important to talk about, you know, who Eddie Jones was. And, and in order to discover that we needed to go into his background and that being his parents. And he was very much against that at the beginning. And it took a little while to sort of get him to understand what we wanted to do rather than perhaps what his perception might've been. So, within a few hours we were able to have a couple of good coffees and and talk it through and he agreed to it and signed off on it which enabled us to move forward and get other people involved so it was a very good meeting and how about the players both for japan and south africans as well who i assume would be less keen to talk about it oh it's a very good point when we look at 
who's involved, we had to identify what sort of story we wanted to tell. But also we had to be aware of, okay, what would happen if these players said no or their managers said no or the entity said no. So we tried to make the story, in a sense, something that we could, I don't want to say control, it's the wrong thing, but wrong thing to say. We, we were trying to write from the outset saying who might be on board and we went to those people. Once we got Eddie, for example, a lot of the Japanese were supportive of it. As far as the South African side, we thought if we tell it from our perspective and tell what we knew of them rather than going deep on players, uh, for example, I knew Thierry Dupree because he was working, playing for Suntory in, in Japan in the, in the lead-up to uh, the 2015 World Cup. So he was one that you could go to, but I thought, as you say, it, it's it's an awkward situation for them. There's nothing really in it for them. Uh, so we thought we'd take more of a an overarching look and a, an overview of here is South Africa, what is their history? They're pretty much unbeatable from the perspective of a Tier 2 nation, particularly at a World Cup. Let's tell it from our perspective in, in how we viewed them, how Japan viewed them, and let's go from there and see who we can get and see what sort of story we can craft from that. And how about the players, both for Japan and South Africans as well, who I assume would be less keen to talk about it? When you look at, when we looked at a lot of sporting films and sporting documentaries, be it a Senna or there, there are so many, there's Andy Murray, there's, there's soccer players. You, you're looking at sports that I think those sports, be they Formula One, uh, tennis, soccer, they're surrounded with pretty much footage one way or another. It's very hard for those guys to leave their house without being filmed somewhere. And then you come to rugby, particularly back then, we really didn't have a lot of footage to go from. So even during Eddie Jones's tenure with the Japanese team, it's there's a lot of press conferences, there's a, there's some training pickups, there's obviously the World Cup getting off the buses, the teams arriving, and then there's the game itself. So we when you when we looked at what we had potentially to make a straight form documentary, we didn't have a lot, but we did have a very clear insight into what these guys had gone through and some backstories as well that would have been well there was no footage for those sort of backstories i.e the the difficulties that the captain michael leach mixed race as eddie is just those difficulties that they difficulties that they had to overcome in their own personal life so we we believe in essence the the story itself had to be told in a in a dramatized perspective and and that was always a difficult thing because we thought, well, are we going to have to come up with a game as well? We're we going to have to look at Invictus, and and we just we're just looking at ways to tell it. But but almost every which way we turned, it was difficult to tell. So there, there was a lot of there was a lot of coffees at Dean and Deluca with uh, with with Nick and the other producer Tim Farmer. But we just for every step that we took for every day that we went that went by we we felt we we're getting closer but there were a lot of rug pulls along the way as th there always is with things like this the toughest thing max was 
from a creative perspective, Nick and I would, would often talk about this. We'd sit there and think, okay, we're going to dramatise this and then we we don't have the budget, we don't have the means to recreate the game at the end. And then even if we did, uh, one of the one of the biggest, uh, I guess, uh, complaints, if I could put it that way, about the film Invictus, although it's a lauded film, it's also one where people talk about, in a negative sense, about the game recreation. So we got to a point where we thought, okay, if we did get the footage, if we could get the footage from World Rugby, how can we segue to that game? In It was impossible to do it seamlessly, but we thought, okay, dramatising and then going to footage, how can we do that? that? So that was our big concern in in a creative sense. And one of the things that made that, I think, more acceptable for an audience, I hope anyway, uh, was that by bringing in interviews with the actual key figures throughout. So from an audience perspective, you, you're seeing this dramatised version, but you're also seeing these actual people, Eddie Jones himself, popping up throughout. And there were two reasons to do that. Number one, just to remind people that actually this happened because we, mm. we, we've all seen based on a, a true story that's not too true. Uh, so we wanted to do that, but also we wanted to sort of build a segue to this real footage, and that was the the duality and the purpose for that. Having that dramatization and using actors, did that help make it clear to audiences that this isn't just about rugby? That was really important, Max. Nick and I were, and, and Tim Farmer, the other producer, we were talking exactly about that, and we were saying... If this is a film about rugby, we, we shouldn't do it. If this is a film just about rugby, it has to be about something else. And and from our perspective, it was a film about people, whether you play rugby or not, people that had struggled in in life. And Eddie Jones, I remember walking away and just thinking, geez, what other rugby coach in the world has a mother who was interned because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor? His mother was living in... His mother's Japanese, was living in Los Angeles, and as a result of that Pearl Harbor bombing, she was interned during the uh, Second World War and then ultimately uh, fell in love with an Australian military officer, moved to Australia, and there's Eddie Jones now. So from the perspective of who Eddie Jones is, you know, he's growing up as in post-World War II as a Japanese boy in a white pretty much predominantly white uh, country. And then Australia goes to Vietnam. His father went to Vietnam. And so he, he went from being the Japanese kid to the Asian kid. And he, it's confusing for a kid. His father's at war uh, fighting for Australia and he's, he's, getting, he's getting flogged at school. Uh, so I, we wanted to tell it from the perspective of people that haven't had things easy in life he certainly hasn't the captain was the same and i think when japan rugby hired eddie jones i just don't think they knew what they were getting in that he was a guy that had always been told he wasn't good enough and in in a way the japanese rugby team were always told they weren't good so i think it was a really good mix and and nick and i kept on talking about let's try and make this about those stories and why they could overcome 
such a tough adversary in South Africa. And how did you balance that emotional story with the rugby and the sport? Yeah, that's a tough one. There's certainly something that we we did talk about and that was certainly something that we wanted to achieve. As you say, somebody comes because of the rugby element. Uh, it was very difficult because you are telling it from a coach and, and captain perspective. We're not really in the locker room with all of the players. We're not really... We don't have that physicality of, of a team grafting through what it took. So we had to really take a few pieces of it, and one being the fullback, the Japanese fullback, Goromaru, who missed out on the World Cup prior to when John, John Kerwin was coaching. And just it sort of becomes this story of people that have a chance to do something. And for the rugby purists that want to see the rugby we didn't want to let them down. We wanted to show the game. And I think taking taking an 80-minute game and putting it into six or seven minutes, that in itself was was quite difficult. Uh, Nick and I studied a lot of things. And one of the things we studied, we went back to the 1976 Rocky film. We thought, how did they do this? In our memories, the, 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 the fight was a lot longer. But in actual fact, it only went for eight minutes and six seconds on screen time. We thought, geez. I wonder if we could do that. How could we do that? Mm. We're not we're not those people, but it possibly can it be done? And we were always pushing ourselves to try and find ways to tell the story in that sort of dual manner of the rugby purists, but people that don't know anything about rugby and they want to balance this story of who are these people? Who is Eddie Jones? Who's Michael Leach? There were so many good, true um, background, backstories around the the build-up to the game and Eddie obviously suffering a stroke and um, Michael Leach breaking his leg and, you know, the amount of uh, obstacles they had to overcome. That in itself, the backstory of, of, of how this uh, team, you know, had so many uh, challenges along the way. Um, I thought that was really fantastic. I mean... You know, all true, and and uh, again, even if you're a rugby lover and you're you're focused on wanting to see the game, I mean, I'm sure most of the rugby lovers have seen the game, but how how they got there and uh, how they made it happen, and also the the challenges around it, I think that was where it worked really well to uh, to, to you know to, to bring that backstory to life and. Uh, Max did a great job on 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 that storytelling. So yeah, I think I think it I think that's why where it works for the rugby lovers and as a a drama and a great true story. And Nick, you led on the music and the audio. So with so many different forms of video coming in with the dramatizations and the archive footage and the interviews and so on, how did you make sure it all tied together? sound wise max and i spent a lot of time um looking at sport films and and dramas but at the end of the day i knew that we had to um we had to have some emotion to the the score because it is a human story and and my job was to support um the storytelling and to give the right level of emotion in in those scenes but then there's action because there's 
excitement. There's, you know, some really hard for, you know, grueling training scenes. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was really fascinated to try and achieve was some aspect of the game itself and, and how we can bring some kind of um, level of authenticity to the soundtrack, not just composing a piece, but maybe using some sound from the game of rugby. And I, I was really excited one night to, uh, I went out and bought some rugby balls, the same brand that they use in the World Cup. And uh, across the road from my house, very late at night, I, I went into a, an empty garage um, that had an amazing reverb echo and I uh, I took some mallets and, and sticks and uh, started hitting this rugby ball and I was like, oh wow, that's going to be really interesting and then went back another night with a recorder and, you know, my wife uh, filmed me because I thought it would be a great story to show Max and then we created a, like a, a drum kit out of the sound of rugby balls that kind of have this it almost sounds like a, a human impact as well but it, it it also to me related to the Japanese taiko drum uh, which is you know very at the heart of a lot of Japanese music and it has this kind of tribal essence so uh, in a small way I, I wanted to use rugby in the score as well in, in an interesting way so we were always trying to look for ways to uh to craft something unique and interesting and then the use of songs was in, important we didn't have a huge budget to go out and you know okay let's get 10 great songs in the film like like um and we didn't need that but we did we we were very very lucky that we could um license the a very iconic japanese song called the western title is skiaki it's the only japanese song that ever went to number one on billboard charts in the 1950s and i think to this day it's still one of the biggest selling singles ever um and it's very iconic um and lyrically it's about holding your head head up high during challenging times um and i wanted to uh rearrange it with a with a modern uh female singer and we worked with a girl called ichiko alba and that the place that we scored that um it's it's used it starts off being used around the time of when Eddie's father passes away, and we uh, we created a scene where the team actually sing it in the dressing room, and then that transitions into this beautiful arrangement that I made with uh, Ichiko Alba. Um, but being able to craft that song and make it part of a, a very emotional and beautiful scene, I think that's one of our musical highlights of the film. Um, and then. My my creative partner is Simon Lebon, and Simon's a huge rugby fan, and obviously um, we wouldn't normally be able to get someone of his uh, stature uh, on a small independent film like this. But uh, he loved the subject. He you know he wanted to support me and Max, and so yeah, I got Simon to write an original song, 
called the story of how and um we used that as the end theme song but musically i think it was always conversations with max he was very involved in in creatively supporting my musical ideas um and i think we we yeah i think we came up with a good score i think there's some great scenes uh i think one of my favorites is the roger bannister scene where where eddie's talking about the uh the first time Roger Bannister, uh, you know, breaks the the record, and and that's such a great scene for me. And musically, I really, I found that very inspiring, and that whole dialogue um, that Max wrote, I found that very moving, and I loved writing that scene. That's a re- that was a real standout for me. And speaking more broadly, at a time when there are so many sports documentaries, how do you stand out? Is it completely vital to make sure that your documentary can be watched by people who don't necessarily like sports? That's a good question. I I do think so, Max. And I think just the forms of media now, how people communicate with each other, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, or whatever they use, I think people people have an opinion of somebody, let's say a tennis player, whomever that might be, we might have an opinion, but that opinion will change quite rapidly when we learn more about that person. Uh, and how do we how do we see that? How do we discover that? And it's generally via media. It's generally via methods of communication that they put out. And I know that the sponsors would certainly love to get that greater reach into an audience that don't necessarily follow tennis in this example. But so to answer your question, I, I really do believe that the emotional angle of what makes a person tick is is so important and it'll get eyes on the screen. Sure, we want to see the best, but look at Tiger Woods when he won the green, the Masters, the green jacket after what he'd gone through. And it was that victory that really was perhaps his greatest victory. Majority of people would say that was his best victory, the one after all the adversity. So definitely, the more that we get to know people, the, their struggles, no matter who they are, be they be they Tiger Woods or or a tennis champion or a soccer champion, we we want to know that they're a little bit like us, and I think that's important. And I think to add to that as well, with uh, the Brighton Miracle and Eddie Jones and Michael Leach and the team, and you. You see all of these incredible backstories and what they went through. Um, I mean, Eddie's an incredibly inspiring man. I mean, he's in, his his vocabulary. He's very eloquent. He cut. He's he cuts to the chase, right? He doesn't mess around, but he's still he's such a, a an impressive human being. And I think generally sports people you know this desire to win and what they go through physically and mentally um i think it's inspiring to anyone whether you're a sports fan or not as a human being and what we all try to achieve in our own world you know whether it's uh me and music or max and filmmaking or a, a designer or a, an accountant or whatever we all face challenges in our professional life and in our personal life and I think that 
that angle of the Brighton Miracle. That's why it works as a family film. I think when we've shown it in Tokyo and done some screenings, the uh, the response we've had from families and kids and mum and dads was really touching because they weren't just talking about the, the game and the rugby. They were talking about the personal achievement and what they all went through. And, and I think it touched a lot of people's hearts. And I think that's where I think the Brighton Miracle will have, you know, hopefully a, a long lasting um, audience because it won't, as it gets to be well known, I, I believe it will, you know, word will get around that it's a very inspiring film. It's been a good journey and something that we hope audiences outside of rugby uh, look at and hopefully it inspires them in what they're doing, whatever it is they're doing. Thanks for listening to the Broadcast Sport Podcast. You can find more of our content at broadcastnow.co.uk slash broadcast-sport. Meanwhile, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you for the next one.